On May 5th, 1993, three eight-year-old boys, Chris Byers, Stevie Branch, and Michael Moore went missing in West Memphis, Arkansas. Their severely abused and hog-tied bodies were found the next day in a water-filled ditch near their homes. There was very little evidence at the crime scene, but the condition of their bodies pointed to satanic cult activity, at least in the eyes of the police, who then convinced the public and then a jury of that story. Three teens, Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., known as the West Memphis Three, were considered outcasts in the community and were quickly arrested, tried, and convicted. Beyond the gruesome nature of the murders, there are details in this case that are very much disturbing. When we get to number one, your suspicion will be at a level 10. Hey, all you weirdos. Welcome to Crime Countdown, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Ash. And I'm Elena. Every week, we'll highlight 10 fascinating stories of history's most engaging and unsettling crimes, all picked by the Parcast research gods. This episode, we're counting down the top 10 disturbing details about the West Memphis Three case. As someone who has been deeply attached to this case for a long time, I, I got to say the first thing that comes to mind when I think about it is witch hunt. Yup. <laughs> this was a case where three kind of oddball teens were crucified simply for wearing black clothing, listening to metal, and being interested in things that weren't, you know, mainstream, really. They were sacrificed for this, and all it did was hurt the three eight-year-old murder victims of this case because justice wasn't sought for them. Personal agendas and biases were completely the main focus for many of the investigators and people involved in this Mm -hmm. who weren't even investigating the crime, but just put their two cents in and had power. Yeah, definitely. You said it perfectly. If the first word that comes to mind is witch hunt, I would say the second one for me at least is tragedy. Yep. Not only were three precious little eight-year-olds brutally murdered and robbed of their entire lives, but so were three teens who also had their entire lives ahead of them. And because of the whole way that this investigation went down, they're still labeled child murderers, even to this day. So wild. And when so much evidence points in a completely different direction. Exactly. And that's the thing. Speaking of evidence, actually. My number one is really going to solidify how bungled and completely mishandled this case was and still continues to be. There are a lot of jarring and upsetting details in this entire countdown that we're going to speak about. And even though I've poured over this case so many times, like ins and outs, ups and downs, it never gets easier to hear it. No, it really doesn't. Well, Elena will dive into five disturbing details on her side of the list, and so will I on my side. But neither of us knows what the other is going to be bringing to the countdown. Let's start the countdown. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., 
And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Ten. I'll start us off with number 10, Dana Moore's testimony. The first trial to begin in the case was against Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. on January 26, 1994. The mothers of all three boys testified about the last time they saw their sons alive. Victim Michael Moore's mother, Dana, told her story, but her daughter later said it was all a lie. Dana Moore testified that she saw her son after school on May 5, 1993, the day before the boys' bodies were found. She said her son was home around 3 p.m. and then was in and out of the house with Stevie Branch. The last time she saw Michael was at 6 p.m. that evening when he left to ride bikes with Stevie and Chris Byers. Soon after, Dana, under oath, said that she then sent her daughter Dawn to go find Michael for dinner, but that he couldn't be found. And that was the accepted truth until 2018. In early 2018, her daughter Dawn was a guest on a podcast and said her mother's testimony was false. This blew my mind. In 2018, like how many years later? Because this was, like you said, accepted as truth. And I was like, yep, that's the way it happened. Yeah, in fact, basically. Dawn said Dana wasn't even home after school that day. And Dana was rarely home when they got home from school. Dawn claimed she never went out to find Michael for dinner because Dana didn't even cook dinner that night. So wild. The two of them, Dana and Dawn, went to a restaurant around 8 p.m. Dawn said her brother and Stevie were last seen at her house around 4 or 5 p.m. before Dana was even home. That's shady. It's shady, and it's like, I understand, obviously, you're trying to get to the bottom of this because you do want to seek justice for your child's death. Of course. But I I don't know what the motive was to lie here. Or maybe she just, do you think she mixed up days? I think, I don't know. And the thing is, lying is not going to get you any closer to real justice. No. If you're just looking to, you know, do confirmation bias here and just say, well, I think these guys did it, so I'm going to twist. That's not helping the kids here. No. I mean, I do wonder if maybe she was trying to save face a little bit because she clearly wasn't home at this time so maybe she was just trying to make it seem like she was and who knows really i who can say we none of us are in her mind so and i none of us would ever want to be in that position so but either way how shocking to find out that many years later nine Number nine on our countdown is Jesse Miskelly Jr.'s confession. The three accused men in this case, Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miskelly Jr., were arrested for the murders after a very shady process that included getting Jesse Miskelly to confess. But that confession is questionable at best. Mm-hmm. 
Before the murders, Jesse Miskelly didn't have much to do with Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin, meaning they weren't close friends. And if you really think about it, like the way it's portrayed in a lot of things is that they were the three best friends. like And they did everything they together. They knew each other. And then that's not the case at all. Mm-hmm. And before Miskelly got fully pulled into the case, Damien Eccles had already been mentioned as a person of interest. Miskelly got wrapped up into it when the woman he babysat for, Vicki Hutchison, started asking him about the murders. Miskelly said he'd introduce her to Damien Eccles. The reason she was asking questions, she had volunteered to help the police investigate. When did police start bringing on volunteers, by the way? Oh, you over there, across the street. You want to help us solve this triple homicide? Did they give her like a Fisher-Price police badge and be like, go go forth and find it? Vicki Hutchison met Damien Eccles and tried to talk with him about becoming a witch, since he was allegedly involved in occult activities. Not human sacrifice levels, let's be clear. Jesse Miskelly was allegedly there during this combo between them. So now you have Damien Eccles allegedly attending a witch's gathering while being suspected of a murder where police are screaming Satanism. And now Miskelly is supposedly there too. Police now have a connection to their satanic theory. Hey, see how that works? Sounds like a setup. See how that works when you place all the pieces on the board where you want them? Mm -hmm. Seems to work out. So Miskelly gets dragged down to the police station and is questioned for hours. During this hours-long process, just over 30 minutes were recorded. If that's not shady, I don't know what is. That is the definition of shady police work. Hours long. Why was it not all on tape? 30 minutes. 30 minutes, because that was the only usable footage. Unreal. By the time it was over, Jesse Miskelly confessed, saying it was himself, Eccles, and Jason Baldwin that committed the murders. A few issues with that confession, though. It was littered with inconsistent details of the crime, which the police knew. Miskelly contradicted himself constantly, and he recanted the confession almost immediately after making it, saying the police had confused him and he was just trying to cooperate. You feel so bad for him, especially watching the Paradise Lost documentaries. Oh, it's horrible. They they really preyed on vulnerable people, too. They absolutely And did. they would fill in details for him, even in the recorded confession. You can hear them finishing a sentence for him or finishing a thought for him mm-hmm. to better fit the narrative that he did it. That they already laid out. But you know what? The police arrested all three men on June 3rd, 1993. Because Miskelly had confessed to the police, his trial was separated from the other two, and his trial would be first. Why first? Prosecution wanted Jesse Miskelly to testify against Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin, but Miskelly refused to repeat his false confession. Which right there tells you a big portion of what you need to know. Yeah, he knew he wasn't going to try to take these guys down because none of them did it. I don't even think it would have been great for him to testify against them because he wouldn't have been able to be fed information on the stand. Exactly. Wouldn't have worked out. Number eight on our countdown of the top 10 West Memphis Three disturbing details is police jumped to cult activity too quickly. You don't say. The bodies of Chris Byers, Stevie Branch, and Michael Moore were found on May 6th, 1993, and the story started getting national attention. So police needed to show quick justice, of course. The condition of the bodies and lack of evidence at the scene weren't necessarily helpful in pointing to answers. But one rumor took off and became the immediate narrative. 
it must be satanic cult activity. The location of the bodies in a wooded area, the fact that they were stripped of their clothing, hogtied, and the injuries on the bodies made the cult theory seem possible or just believable depending on how you feel about it. Days after the murders, the chief inspector was speaking to the public and mentioned cult activity as a possible explanation that they were exploring. Satanic Panic was also having its heyday in the 90s. Oh yeah. So it's so easy to see how a community would cling to that storyline. From then on, that theory overshadowed any other possibilities, including that the killer could be someone the boys knew personally. That's the problem here is not only is it easy to see how the community so quickly clung to that storyline, which you can't honestly fault the community because it was being fed to them. Mm -hmm. It's really the responsibility of the investigators to not feed into that. Like, they knew that the community was going to cling to that idea. Right. So you don't feed it to them. It was strategic. And again, I understand that it's like they wanted to catch, you know, that you want to end this case. Because it, three children being brutally murdered in that way, mm -hmm. you're obviously the community is going to want you to solve it and solve it fast. But not at the expense of real answers and other people's lives. And actual justice. Yeah. So then, in comes Jerry Driver. Ugh a juvenile probation officer who not only believed there was a satanic cult activity in the area, but had been in charge of supervising a teenager named Damien Eccles, who had been in trouble at a young age. Driver was convinced that Eccles was involved in a satanic cult. Eccles denied it, but did say he believed in and practiced magic. Reminder, there are strong differences between studying and practicing magic or Wicca and worshiping Satan. But regardless, Jerry Driver told West Memphis police all about Damien Eccles. During the trial, the jury heard from a cult expert who claimed the teens' love of heavy metal music and how they dressed were, quote, key indicators of satanic cult activity. Cult expert. Unreal. Other evidence the jury was presented with surrounding cult activity was also very circumstantial. Which is very generous way of putting it. <laughs> it's like, okay, so if you shop at Hot Topic, you're in a cult. Yeah. Seven. At number seven this week is police pointed to the three teens because of their dark interests and some past misconduct. This is sort of the companion to number eight. Once the police had their satanic ritual motivation tunnel vision going on, they needed suspects. And who else would be doing a human sacrifice during a satanic ritual than kids who listen to heavy metal music? Obviously. I literally cannot. Who else? Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin were already friends who were bonded by their social outcast labels. Jesse Miskelly Jr., as you mentioned, Ash, wasn't really that close with the other two. What the teens did have in common, they liked wearing black. Who doesn't? Like, I'm literally a hairstylist. I'm required to. I wear black all the time. <laughs> and they liked listening to heavy metal music. It was the 90s and also same. Yeah, like Metallica <laughs> rules. Now, as we know, Damien Eccles had mentioned being into Wicca. But Jason Baldwin wasn't involved in that area. Neither was Jesse Miskelly Jr. Eccles also had some past legal issues, having been arrested for burglary and sexual misconduct. Not great to have an arrest record, but also doesn't make you a killer. And the sexual misconduct charge is like, he was like getting busy with his girlfriend in like a fairly public place. Yeah. 
So, of course, with the clothes, music, past misconduct, and interest in Wicca, Eccles was labeled the leader of a local satanic cult and must have killed as part of some dark ritual, which is a perfectly logical conclusion to come to. Yeah, totally. Did that make Jason Baldwin guilty by association, though? Like, why why does he get dragged into this? Nobody ever knows. That's the thing. I think they literally just, I think it was because there was three boys who were killed. Mm -hmm. So it was almost like they needed three perpetrators. Yeah. I'm sure it had something to do with like three, three, six, you know, like yeah, the, the it whole thing. fed into the cult activity of it. And all. also Jason Baldwin was, you know, from a not well off family. He was like, had a poor family. He was taking care of that family. He was literally like help. It, it's really picking on people who are vulnerable and that stinks. But in all the, obviously we heard how Jesse Miskelly got roped into it all, which is like just wild. It's just so sad all around. And as we mentioned, their interests were used to convict them during their trials, which that should never happen. Can you imagine if, and we said this when we covered it on Morbid, but can you imagine if our interests were brought up at a trial like this? That's the thing. It's like, no, your interests, unless they are illegal and like felonious, they should not, not be brought into a trial to convict you on something. And they don't define you. They don't. That's the thing. He like dabbled in like reading about Wicca, not even maybe practicing. Yeah. Nobody even knew for sure. And nobody knew what Wicca was. They assumed it was like this dark witchcraft, like Satanism, the way they thought it was. Like basically really just about the earth, man. And nobody, nobody took the time to really look into like what Satanism is, what Wicca is, what witchcraft is. We just, you hear it. They thought darkness, occult, like bad things. They mm -hmm. just went with it. No one took the time to do any research here, except it sounds like Damien Eccles, to be quite honest. Yeah, right. <laughs> An actual cult, quote unquote, expert said the music and clothing pointed to satanic cult activity. According to the New York Times, this quote unquote expert had a quote, mail order degree. Because what even is a cult expert? It's a mail order degree. <laughs> And that is what qualifies you to testify in a murderful homicide. Yeah, makes sense. Six. Landing at number six is the fact that the only DNA found at the crime scene matched Stevie Branch's stepfather, Terry Hobbs. Mm-hmm. Lawyers for the West Memphis Three continually argued in their appeals that there was a lack of physical evidence against them, which was true. But DNA was found at the scene that matched one of the victim's stepfathers. And it was a piece of evidence that became crucial in the teen's release from prison. In 2007, new DNA tests were done that gave the investigation new life. The results showed that there was zero genetic material from the crime scene that matched Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, or Jesse Miskelly Jr. But there was a match to Terry Hobbs, the stepfather of victim Stevie Branch. Wild. And remember, the boys had been tied up? A hair was found on one of the boys' knots that bound him. DNA testing matched that to Hobbs. And get this, are you ready? I know no. I know you know this, but you all listening, are you ready? It makes me crazy. Terry Hobbs was never interviewed at the time of the murders in 1993. Police did not question him until 14 years later in June of 2007. How can anyone look at that and not see it for what it is? He lived in the same home as one of these boys who was brutally murdered and his DNA was found at the scene. And it was found in the rope. Are you kidding me? And 
no DNA or genetic material of any kind from Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Muskelly Jr. were found at those crime scenes. How did they do it? Are they criminal masterminds? No. At 16 years old. They just weren't there. Oi. Now, Hobbs was reportedly dismissive about the hair and the DNA match. Crazy. He sure was. During his police questions, he said the victim could have picked it up because he, quote, played with our little boy regularly. No, you didn't. No. There was also a second hair found at the crime scene. DNA testing of that hair matched to Terry Hobbs's friend, David Jacoby. Jacoby told the local NBC affiliate in 2013, quote, they said close to the crime scene because at one time I did walk near where they had found the kids with Terry Hobbs, but I didn't wear hats back then. My hair could have blown around anywhere. Literally anywhere. What? Anywhere. Your excuse is that you weren't wearing a hat? Yeah. Cause you, that, what? It checks out. I can't. Also, the lack of DNA evidence towards the three convicted teens and new DNA matches were used to secure their release from prison. I'll talk about that a little more later in the episode. But it's no small clue to just be cast aside. Y yeah, no, <laughs> definitely not. Kind of massive. Honestly, Every single entry in this list makes me angrier and angrier because it's just wild. Every single time I hear about this case, I end up getting like angry for mm -hmm. like at least five following days. I'm just pissed. It's I, the fact that they can find DNA and genetic material from the stepfather mm -hmm. who Pam Hobbs had come out and said she believed could have something to do with it. Right. His DNA is there. It's the only DNA there that they found. And exactly. They, the three men convicted, their DNA just never got there. And it's like, I'm not saying he did it, but I'm saying you you should follow that lead a little bit. And also, why wasn't he questioned For or at least even years. spoken to in the initial investigation? He lived in the same house. That's what kills me is it's like nobody's saying that he's 100 percent the guy. No, but it is a very viable lead that was never followed up on and still hasn't been followed up on because it didn't fit the, the narrative. narrative. Exactly. They're role models, nurturers, and to many, the ultimate best friend. But what happens when Mommy Dearest has a dark side, one that's more criminal than caring? Find out in the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of Malicious Moms. Every Sunday on Spotify, join me for a closer look at the moms who took their maternal instincts to illegal extremes. A beloved actress who would do anything for her child. A jilted ex who used her kids to take deadly revenge. Plus, a wife, a mistress, and an altercation with an axe you have to hear to believe. In this ParCast collection, learn the dire lengths some women went to help their children and how others used motherhood to carry out their misdeeds. Sometimes true crime can be a real mother. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. All right, let's jump back in with number five on our countdown of the West Memphis Three disturbing details. Starting off the second half of our list is the bloody knife owned by John Mark Byers, stepfather to victim Chris Byers. While police were gathering evidence, they found a knife that had been owned by John Byers with blood on it that matched both he and his stepson Chris. It's a lead that was never pursued. One of a million leads that seemed to be never pursued. The Paradise Lost trilogy were the three prominent documentaries produced about this case, and I highly recommend them. Such good documentaries. John Byers was heavily featured in the second one, Paradise Lost Revelations, which came out in 2000. The New York Times reported that after watching that film, many believed Byers should have been investigated. He also had a history of violence and run-ins with the police. During the filming of the Paradise Lost sequel, Byers gave the filmmakers his blood-stained knife. Testing on the blood determined it was consistent with both John Byers and his stepson, one of the victims, Christopher. John Byers testified that he cut his thumb with the knife while cutting venison around Thanksgiving. But in a previous interview, he said he, quote, had no idea how blood got on the knife and that he didn't remember cutting himself. Weird getting shadier, guys. And then he testified that he thought he was only being asked about Christopher's blood when previously questioned, but he didn't know whether Christopher had touched the knife. It seems as though he must have somehow. Well, John Byers died in a car accident in June 2020. Just investigate these things. And like we said before, no one is saying they are absolutely guilty, but the fact that they are not trying to eliminate suspects and the fact that they are not looking at these step-parents, there's stepfathers in here that are showing some real heavy shadiness. And because like they have previous run-ins with the law. That are violent. They have shown violence. Terry Hobbs has been a violent man his entire life. Mm Mm-hmm. To his family and who knows who else. Do your due diligence. Yes. That's literally your entire job. You're so quick to scream guilty at these three kids. And you're not looking at these grown men who have been around these children their entire lives and have histories of violence and have DNA and genetic material that is pointing to them at least having something weird going on. And I'm sorry, but you're not thinking of these three babies that were murdered because you're not doing the right thing and actually investigating this the way that it should have been investigated. No, there's no justice for them. It's just whatever they wanted the outcome to be. Four. Landing at number four this week is the fact the West Memphis Three spent 18 years in prison before they took an Alford plea. After the trials, Jason Baldwin and Jesse Miskelly Jr. were both sentenced to life in prison. Damian Eccles was sentenced to death. 
But after almost two decades of maintaining their innocence and fighting for their freedom, they accepted a plea and walked out of prison. I remember this day, like, perfectly. I remember this day because I got to your house and you were literally standing up with your, like, hands, like, in front <laughs> of your face. Just watching it just, on TV. It was like a nail biter. Yeah. All three men tried to push through multiple appeals after their trials. The court of public opinion also started to take the teens' sides after aspects of the case fell apart post-convictions. The first two Paradise Lost documentaries came out in 1996 and 2000, putting the details of this case out there for the public. The website, Free the West Memphis Three, also launched and helped inform the public. Remember Vicki Hutchison, the woman who used Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. as a babysitter? She admitted she committed perjury by testifying against the three men, claiming the police had told her what to say. Okay, so why wasn't a full-blown investigation done into this police department? At that point, it should have been a mistrial. Everybody should have been gone. Perjury on the witness stand? Are you kidding me? Perjury and the police telling her what to say on the stand. Mistrial. Get rid of them all. Move the trial to a totally different area. The foreman of the jury was also accused of misconduct for talking to his lawyer about the case during the trial. Combine that with the DNA match of Terry Hobbs, and on November 4th, 2010, the Arkansas Supreme Court finally ordered a new hearing to analyze new evidence. Damian Eccles hired a new defense team that discovered the new evidence did not conclusively point to a different perpetrator. All the evidence was circumstantial. His team instead met with the Arkansas Attorney General before the hearing and agreed to an Alford plea. An Alford plea meant the three men pleaded guilty to lesser charges. They could state for the record that they were innocent and pleaded guilty because it was in their best interest. On August 19, 2011, the judge approved the Alford plea. The three men left prison on time served after 18 years. And Jason only agreed to the Alfred plea because he was ready to fight and keep fighting because he was like, I will not be labeled guilty when right. I didn't do this. He only did it for Damien because he said they were going to kill Damien. And they were. And it was like and when you watched it on TV, the, when they were in that courtroom and Jason says it and he starts like breaking down crying mm -hmm. and then Damien hugs him. It was just like. Such a moment. And these two boys who had this incredible bond when they were little and were like best friends, completely separated after this, had to deal with, I mean, especially Damien, what he went through in prison, and then for them to finally see each other again and for Jason to be so selfless. Right. It's like... That's an amazing friend right come there. Come on. Like, this story is just, like, beyond anything you could conjure. Three. Number three on our countdown of the West Memphis Three disturbing details is the Bojangles theory. Bojangles was a restaurant near the crime scene where an incident took place that was yet another possible lead or clue that no matter how credible it felt, could have been handled properly and we wouldn't be speculating about it today. On the day the murders took place, May 5th, 1993, around 8.40 p.m., the West Memphis Police Department got a call from the Bojangles restaurant. The employee reported that a black man had entered the restaurant and gone into the women's restroom about 30 minutes before that. The employee said the man seemed to be bleeding. 
The man left before an officer got to Bojangles and chatted with the manager through the drive-through window. So this officer did not come inside that restaurant. Why? To investigate this. Drive-through window. Like, what are you doing? Was it because you wanted to order fries? Like, as you did this? You could what also are you doing? go inside for that, though. What are you doing? The manager said the man had muddy feet and had blood on his face and arm. She said he also seemed to be, quote, disoriented. He had also smeared blood all over the wall in the restroom. And this is this is where it gets really crazy. Again, the officer never went inside the restaurant. So he smeared blood all over the inside of the restroom. And we don't want to know whose blood it is? The next day, a detective and a police sergeant go over to Bojangles to collect blood scrapings from the restroom wall. The next day. Like, let's just let it sit and coagulate for good measure. Yeah. Or let somebody wipe it off. I know. That's. I thought <laughs> you were going like, to say what? that because I forgot what happened at this part. Oh, it gets worse, everyone. And then they did nothing with them. The blood was never sent to a lab for testing. No one chatted more with employees. That was it. This is near the crime scene where they know they have found three murdered little boys. And he has in the woods in muddy mud. feet. Mm-hmm. During one of the trials, the prosecutor said it was, quote, complete absurdity to think the killer would take time to hide the bodies and any genetic evidence, but make that mess in Bojangles. Sir, this entire trial is based on complete absurdity, so we might as well let that in as well. Yeah, that's the name of the trial is complete absurdity. Thank you. There were also reports of the man wearing a cast, which some say would have made it difficult to tie the boys up. But why not just get it all tested and rule it out scientifically? And also follow up on the lead because you guys didn't think that this was somebody who acted alone. So maybe somebody else tied them up while he was there. We don't know because you didn't do your job. You didn't follow it up. It's what we said about the other two, about Terry Hobbs and John Mark Byers. No one's saying this is the guy. What we are saying is part of your job as an investigator is to rule out suspects. What are you doing? What did you learn? How did you become a police officer? The world may never know. Never know. Oh my God, I just get so angry. I know. I can't with this case. It's... They didn't do anything. They didn't do their jobs. And all I think about is Gary Gitchell sitting up there at a press conference saying that, like, they got him. We got him. And it's like, you didn't no, do you anything. Didn't. No. You didn't do anything. You did everything else that you were not supposed to do. You did nothing. You went off it. You figured out a narrative you wanted. You picked three guys that you were going to throw up for the whole thing. Yeah. And then you just place the, the pieces on the board to make it so. Like, you literally fed lines to yeah. people testifying. Are you kidding me? I always think I don't know how this can get worse, but knowing this case, I know exactly how it can get worse. So well, even knowing that it's still ongoing is just nuts. Two. We're down to the final two spots on our countdown of the West Memphis Three disturbing details. At number two is, the fact the wounds thought to be ritualistic on the boys' bodies may have been made by animals post-mortem. 
The wounds and injuries on the bodies of Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore were immediately portrayed as evidence of a satanic sacrifice. And that was used in selling that story to the public and jury. But it's possible some of them came from post-mortem animal bites. Which a forensic pathologist should know. Would be able to determine. Yes. Hopefully. The boys had what appeared to be scratches, bite marks, and possible stab wounds. Then, in 2007, that new evidence we've mentioned during the episode was filed with the court and included this updated theory about the wounds. Damien Eccles' new lawyers had put together a team of forensic experts to dispute the accusation of sexual abuse. They argued that many of the wounds were caused by animals. The host and creator of the Truth and Justice podcast, Bob Ruff, our friend, covered this case extensively. <laughs> he does an amazing job, by the way. He really listen. does. He went down to West Memphis to explore the animal theory. He met with a forensic pathologist who agreed the wounds were a mixture of anti-mortem and post-mortem. She claimed the boy's head injuries appeared to have been inflicted before they died, but the other wounds were possibly bite marks from animals like turtles and fish. Bob Ruff then went to the crime scene area, lowered a chicken carcass into the water, and noted that immediately, quote, turtles came out of nowhere and ripped all the meat off. Of course. One. And that brings us to number one on our countdown of the top 10 West Memphis Three disturbing details. The chief of police stepped down around the same time the alleged lost evidence was discovered by Eccles' attorney. Obviously, technology has advanced when it comes to testing evidence in criminal investigations since 1993. That means the evidence in this case could now be tested with even more precision. But Damien Eccles' attorney ran into some roadblocks trying to make this happen. Ever since May 1993, when Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miskelly Jr. were very questionably accused and convicted, they have consistently maintained their innocence. Today, they are free men after spending 18 years in prison and 10 years on parole after being released after taking the Alfred plea in 2011. But it's been decades of not just trying to prove they're 100% innocent, but working to get investigators to follow the evidence to really find out who killed Chris Byers, Stevie Branch, and Michael Moore. We have to remember, no one is currently in prison, and the only people that actually paid for these crimes is Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miskelly Jr. 100%. No actual person has been caught in this. In May 2020, Eccles and his attorney talked to the then-prosecuting attorney, who agreed to release the evidence for further DNA testing. Eccles's team said an attorney in Little Rock also submitted a Freedom of Information Act request, which went unanswered in violation of Arkansas state law. The prosecutor said at the time the trial evidence was stored at the West Memphis Police Department. It had been recommended that the new MVAC DNA system be used on the existing evidence to get much stronger DNA test results. And then, as late as August 2021, officials claimed the evidence was either lost or destroyed in a fire years ago. But there is absolutely no record of a fire released to the public. That is my favorite part of this. You're going to go as far as to claim that a fire happened and not think that anybody's going to follow up to be like, oh, what fire? They really thought they did that. 
you really thought you were sly and it's slick like, there. You need a record. You need something that proves that there was a fire and you really think people aren't going to ask about it and that a fire department isn't going to come out and be like, yeah, there was no fire. As soon as they said there was a fire, I was like, no, there was. Like, what? I we would have like, heard convenient. about that. Very convenient. Well, then we got to December 2021 and a miracle happened. Don't you know? Imagine that. A miracle. One of Damien Eccles' attorneys released a statement that the quote-unquote lost evidence had been found. He had been granted access to the police department through an Arkansas state court order and found the evidence intact and organized. No, Elena, it burned in a fire that was undocumented. And it was lost, even though it was very organized. Shortly before it was announced that the evidence had been found, don't you know, West Memphis Police Chief Michael Pope had resigned. Weird. What timing? Eccles claimed it was definitely connected to the discovery of the evidence, and I gotta say, (laughs) I agree. Ding, ding, ding. The West Memphis Police Department, of course, denied any connection. They also denied that they didn't botch this entire thing. Well, either way, the evidence can now be tested, and it could reveal even more details to this crime that we don't even know yet, and I am ready for it. But they have to fight for it. The fact that we have to fight to not only clear three men's names, but at the bottom of this, and I've said it so many times and I will say it again, we have to fight to find out what happened to three eight-year-olds. Yeah. Why? We should just, it should have already been found out. That should be priority one here, and it never was. It only is to, like, the people that are fighting to clear their names. They care about, like, we're the ones who all care about what happened to Stevie Branch, Michael Moore and Christopher Byers. And the fact that they are going to have to fight just to get that evidence tested. Mm -hmm. And also, I just want to put it out there. If these three men are guilty, why are they fighting this hard to get that tested when it could potentially point back at them? Exactly. It would make no sense for them to be fighting this hard. Because it's not like they're just saying, hey, can we get this tested? And somebody says no. And they're like, darn, guys, I guess I tried. that was that. No, they are fighting hard. They are rallying everybody to get this tested. They know that it's not going to point at them. They know that right. because they didn't do it. And clearly, so does Arkansas because they've claimed fires. Exactly. They've claimed, oh, no, we lost it. And then the police chief is like, oh, I got to go. Got to get out of here. And, I mean, if if the state of Arkansas was fine with truly releasing three brutal child murderers, then that's a whole nother issue. But it's a big old question Doesn't mark. seem to add up, I gotta say. I think the podcast research gods, they... They did an amazing job on this one. They did. They nailed it. And I mean, this is a case that you could truly, I think we did four parts on it. We did. You did. (laughs) I mean, it, it's, there is just avenue after avenue to go down. So this was a great, I think, way of just really laying out the main points of it and the main really disturbing and really frustrating details. Definitely. And I got to say, number one is for sure what has been happening recently with the evidence. It is mind boggling and it's ongoing. And I mean, I really recommend following like Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin on like social media and Mm -hmm. on Twitter and all that, because they're really updating everybody on it. Bob Ruff has done like an amazing job with this case and he continues to. So I really, I mean, everybody's got to get together and fight for this because those three boys deserve to have Justice. justice, like real justice.
Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another great episode. Remember to follow Crime Countdown on Spotify to get a brand new episode delivered every week. You can find all episodes of Crime Countdown and all other podcast shows for free on Spotify. And if you like this show, follow at Parcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Parcast Network on Twitter. And if you like us, which we hope you do, you can listen to our show, Morbid. You can find that anywhere you listen to podcasts. You could also follow us on social media. We are at Morbid Podcast on Instagram and at A Morbid Podcast on Twitter. Crime Countdown is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It was created by Max Cutler. Sound design by Kristen Acevedo with associate sound design by Jamie Ryan. Research by Jay Cahio. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez. It's produced by John Cohen, Kristen Acevedo, and Jonathan Ratliff. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro. We're your hosts, Ash Kelly and Alina Urquhart. For many, Sunday is a special day spent with family. That makes it the perfect time to check out the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every Sunday in this ParCast collection, join me for an intimate look at the matriarchs who were far more criminal than caring. Warning, this isn't your mother's podcast. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify.